0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is super cool. I'm delighted to have John Favreau here with me. John is best known as former President Barack Obama's head speechwriter and, as Barack Obama called him, his mind reader. After John finished up at the White House in 2013, he's become a regular political commentator, a podcaster, and is the co-founder of Crooked Media with two other former Obama staffers, where he hosts the top-rated podcast Pod Save America. He's also recently launched his own podcast called Offline with John Favreau. In it, he discusses the myriad ways the internet has transformed modern living. John is also a new dad. And during the pandemic, he struggled himself with stress, social isolation, technology addiction. And he's today going to share with us some of what it looks like behind the scenes in his regular life. John, I'm thrilled you're joining me today. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You have a really cool career. You have worked for President Barack Obama as his head speechwriter. You have been in the war room with major political actors and in important moments in this country's history. You also have a major podcast. You have now four podcasts. You have your finger on the pulse of the American psyche. What I'm interested in talking with you today about is your psyche. You strike me as someone who's psychologically oriented. Maybe I should say psych curious. What do I mean by that? Well, When I was listening to you talk with your wife, Emily, on one of your episodes of Offline, your podcast, you were talking about how offline the podcast is about technology and the internet, but you're also interested in sort of the social connection that we have or don't have because of technology and the internet. And you clearly seem to be interested in the mental health conversation that's happening in this country, as evidenced by your interview with Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. And so I'd love to start by asking you. How does technology affect your everyday life, sort of your behaviors, your habits, how you think and how you feel as someone who has a front row seat to the technology of the moment today?
1: One of the reasons I started offline is because I started realizing during the pandemic that I was spending so much time on my phone, which... To be fair, I spent a lot of time on my phone before the pandemic, <laughs> Yeah, but I think that because we were all closed off from each other during the pandemic and I wasn't having those like in-person social interactions, I noticed how much I was on my phone even more, and I don't think it made me happier. In fact, I think it made me more agitated. I think in some ways, you're lonelier when you're just like scrolling through Twitter or like interacting on social media as opposed to talking to people in front of you. At the same time, because I'm someone who thinks about politics all the time, I started thinking that there's probably a connection between how awful our politics has become And how I individually was feeling, how each of us individually are feeling by using technology so much in our lives and by being on that phone all the time and by scrolling all the time. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to launch offline because I sort of wanted to explore whether that was just something in my head or was that a real sort of phenomenon that we're all dealing with right now.
0: I mean, if you could spend a day in my office as a fly on the wall, you would hear... People talk about this very phenomenon. I mean, particularly during and after, if you could call it after the pandemic, where we were all pretty isolated at home. And we have this tool called social media that is supposed to, on paper, connect us. We can see each other's vacations and reconnect with high school friends. And at the same time, I think it is isolating. There are two things. One is that it takes us away from in-person interactions. There's an emotional piece to it as well, especially because like Instagram, for example, is a highlight reel of people's lives. I think people can feel down and blue and lonely when they see other people hashtag living their best life or adolescence gathering together and you're sitting at home on your phone and it's a Friday night. I mean, I think there are really, really important behavioral and social emotional effects of technology that we really didn't take into consideration when we came up with these gizmos?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I always remember when my best friend from childhood got the iPhone. He was the first one to get the iPhone and he was trying to explain it to me. And he's like, basically, we'll never be bored again. Like you're waiting in line for something and now we'll always have something to do. And so I first approached technology and the internet age and being online all the time. I was very excited about it. When I was in the White House back then, we weren't allowed to tweet ourselves, but we could be on Twitter. So I had like a lurker Twitter account while I was in the White House and I was like completely addicted because I was either by myself writing speeches, writing can be sort of lonely as well, and so to sort of break out of that, to take a break from writing, I would just go on Twitter and scroll and scroll and scroll. And then when I left the White House in 2013, I was so excited because I'm like, now I can tweet on my own. (laughs) And you know, I leave in 2013 and I'm tweeting up a storm, I'm arguing with people on Twitter and I think it's great. And I'd say within a couple years, you start realizing like, oh, this is not very fulfilling at all. (laughs) And I think, you know, I started pulling back from arguing with people on Twitter because I realized that's pointless. I go on Twitter all the time now, but I tweet a lot less. I spend a lot less time interacting with people on Twitter because I just don't find it all that fulfilling and I don't find it all that healthy for me. I'm probably still on my phone a lot, but I've been since starting offline, I've actually been better with the phone use.
0: There is a thing called phone addiction. I mean, Mm, you know, as you talked about on your podcast with a Stanford psychiatrist.
1: Dr. Anna Lemke.
0: Yeah, Anna Lemke. That was a great episode. Dr. Lemke talks about how dopamine, which is our neurotransmitter that is in part responsible for pleasure and the motivation to seek pleasure, can be triggered by, you know, recreational drugs, shopping, alcohol. And for a lot of people in the digital era, it can be from phone use and technology, because we're constantly being served up, things that give us pleasure. But if you use anything too much, whether it's alcohol or sugar or Twitter, even if it seems pleasurable in the moment, you can become addicted to it. You can become habituated to it so much so that if you're not using the substance, you actually you have withdrawal, and then you need to use more and more of the substance to achieve the feeling of just normalcy. And I'm just gonna remind you that your wife said that you <laughs> would go into the bathroom with your phone. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And I just think that's <laughs> funny because guess what? Me too.
1: Well, you know what's funny is so right before this podcast started, I'm now trying to like not bring my phone to the bathroom or into the <laughs> studio, right? Like I don't have my phone with me right now. I have it out in my desk. But I was sitting here at the table waiting for this to start, and I had no phone. And I just had this moment where I was like, sort of looking around the studio because the addiction comes in when you don't have the phone to look at as the crutch for yes. when you're just sitting and being. Yes. Then you start to think like, oh, well, what am I going to do with my mind? <laughs> like, And then you start feeling a little edgy and irritated, which I'm sure is an addictive symptoms.
0: It is. It's like you just need to have it in your hands and be doing something to feel normal. There's also the opportunity cost of what are you missing by not having the phone on you? So what did we do as kids? I mean, you're younger than I am, but like, I didn't grow up with phones. From... I didn't
1: either. No, until after college. Yeah, I guess or you're not that de- young. In, in the middle of college, I guess, I had like a flip phone.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Remember those? It was like holding a refrigerator up to your ear. There's something to be said for boredom and letting your creative juices flow. I mean, I find that I come up with ideas for writing or for podcasting or things I want to talk to my kids or husband about just when I'm walking around, not on my phone or listening to a podcast. But I think we don't give ourselves that kind of opportunity very often when we're flooded with content that is interesting and appealing, even if it's bad news. As Dr. Murthy was saying, it's like looking at roadkill. We're drawn to things that are stimulating, good or bad. And Twitter's algorithms, let's face it, are wired to addict us.
1: I think we use technology and especially our phones as a distraction sometimes. From being with our own thoughts. 100%. That can sometimes be scary, right? Like, it's a very LA thing, but I didn't know about these until I moved here. But there's like these sensory deprivation chambers, you know, where you can like go in and you lie in water or whatever. And it's like, basically, you can't see, you can't hear, you, know, you just like float for a while. That is my worst nightmare. <laughs> totally.
0: It sounds horrendous. It's like solitary it's like, confinement. So people,
1: sometimes I was finding myself like in bed at night. As a way to avoid sitting in bed and thinking and just sitting with your own thoughts, I just like had my phone and I would like scroll through Twitter before falling asleep. That's not really healthy because if you're trying to avoid sitting there with your own thoughts, it's probably better to work through those thoughts. It's better to just learn to be by yourself and deal with your own thoughts.
0: It's absolutely essential for health and well-being to acknowledge your thoughts. And some of them are going to be painful. Some of them are going to be uncomfortable. But connecting the dots between your thoughts and your feelings, be them uncomfortable or pleasant, with your behaviors is really the birthplace of agency for health. And it's a lot easier to avoid uncomfortable thoughts and feelings than it is to scroll around on Instagram and look at like cats hanging from ceiling fans and like ridiculous dancing. Well,
1: it's not like those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings go away just because you're using your phone to distract yourself. Like you'll just bottle them all up.
0: (laughs) Right. Not only (laughs) that, it'll
1: still cause you some health problems. You can't just get them to go away.
0: That's right. The thoughts and the feelings are there in the morning and they're there in the morning with the hour less of sleep that you didn't get because you stayed up late on your phone. It sounds like you know something about this. You also alluded to the fact that during the pandemic, as a new parent in an isolated situation, which new parenting is, and then you're in a pandemic on top of it, you had this stretch of life where you were sad and you lost weight and like, can you tell me about that? I mean, of course I wanna pry open the door here and figure out what happened. I'm gonna guess it's not unlike what a lot of my patients experienced.
1: So I am an extremely social person, I'm not an extrovert in the sense that, like, I go to a party with a bunch of strangers and, like, have to talk to everyone. But the friends I have, my circle, I am always wanting to interact with everyone all the time. Like, I'm just very social. Like, I was the kid who, in kindergarten, I would cry when I missed the bus because I thought that something would happen at school that I would miss. <laughs> like, you were, like, like, the original friend... FOMOer. I've had FOMO my entire life. Yeah, like, huge. So I always needed to be around friends. I always needed to be hanging out with people. That's been me my whole life. So... Obviously, pandemic, not great for that. You know, I've also been someone who's, like, afraid of big changes. You know, I became a parent relatively later in life, right? I was 40 when Charlie was born, or 39. So I was, like, nervous about becoming a parent. I thought that might be isolating on its own. And then there was the pandemic, you know, all of it together. I think the first six months of being a dad, I did not do that well, (laughs) being a dad. Because I kind of was like, I'm not seeing anyone. We're stuck inside. I felt like I was Emily's assistant and I wasn't being a very good assistant. <laughs> like I could get fired from the job any moment. And it was also 2020 and the election was happening in November. And I had invested so much into making sure that Donald Trump is defeated. We started this whole company for that reason in 2016. So originally, I didn't think we were going to have a kid during that election. We did also... I was home the whole time. So it was just like the stress, the isolation. It just really got to me. What got me out of it, you have a, a, a child and the, the first months are hard. And then by like eight months in, I was like, okay, I can handle this. This is great. Like he's like smiling and stuff like that. And then by 10 months, I was like, I love this. I love being a parent. I love being a father. And now the work life parenting balance is very tricky and I have not figured it out yet. But I noticed that. I am most calm and most at ease when I'm just like hanging out with Charlie, no phone, no work, no anything else. We went to Maine this summer and I just had a week with Emily and Charlie where we just like go to the beach every day and just hang out on the beach. just so build sand castles, go on the Going, I felt my mental health, my physical health was like the best it had been in two years on that vacation.
0: So good to get that brain rest. It's a really important point you made about parenting, particularly in the first six months, particularly as a first-time parent. You know, I think people say, oh, this is the most magical time of your life. It's so wonderful. You're going to appreciate your parents more than you ever did. You're going to bond. And really, especially for the guys, I mean, for the first six months, it's really about the breast and the mom. Yeah. And the kid is really kind of like a glorified blob. And I think that it's, like, good to be honest about the fact that it's just kind of hard to know where to fit in. Like, you kind of are like a third wheel.
1: Yeah, there was definitely that feeling. Oh, also, six months in, I go out for a jog. You know, you need to get out of the house. It's the pandemic. I tripped jogging, put my hand down, broke my shoulder, not just dislocated my shoulder, shattered my shoulder, had surgery for the first time in my life. And so, like, had this long recovery where I also felt useless because now Emily has to take care of Charlie <laughs> and I'm sitting there with like my shoulder broken and we're stuck at home. And I remember that's where I was watching the insurrection happen on January 6th. Oh like my shoulder, <laughs> shoulder broken, out of surgery, eight month old at home. It was just tough times.
0: I'm imagining Emily having kind of two thoughts about your injuring yourself. Like, oh honey, I'm so sorry. And secondly, like what? The hell? Like, I cannot afford to have a man down right now.
1: Her parents were visiting us for Christmas, and they, thank God, they stayed for an extra couple weeks after surgery so they could uh, help her out, which was nice.
0: Here you are, like, bound to your house, bound in a sling. How did you connect the dots, John, between the kind of social isolation, the way you felt, like, maybe you weren't eating enough? How did you connect the dots? Like, what broke that open?
1: In those moments in the pandemic where you know, cases were down and uh, I guess after the vaccines, right? Like people started going out a little bit more. The first couple moments I had of social interaction where it felt normal again, either we were at an outdoor restaurant or, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, it was like us and two other couples. And we'd like sit outside and six feet apart and you know, chairs, <laughs> it was like, that's not a fun way to talk to people, but we're lucky we're in LA. So the weather is good. So we got to go out and start doing stuff probably earlier than a lot of other people in the country. And I think it was those first interactions that started feeling normal again, where I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I've been missing. And this is what I actually need again. And then on the phone stuff and the technology, partly talking to all the guests I have on offline, it's just the awareness of what my phone was doing to me and realizing that, like, look, I care a lot about politics and I love my job and I love what I do and I feel like real mission behind it, but I got to be honest with myself, like I am not helping to fix politics by scrolling on Twitter all day long. Like that's not doing it. You know, I should go knock on doors or call voters or think about what I want to say on the pod or read long form pieces. There are other things I can do to help move the ball forward here in politics that aren't just like scrolling on Twitter all day long. And I think it was making that connection that also helped me as well. And finally, feeling more confident in my role as a father and also like developing a relationship with Charlie where I was like, okay, parenting now is not some burden, though it can be stressful and tiring, as we all know. It is something that can be really fulfilling and actually bring me joy. Instead of being afraid of it, I am now sort of embrace it.
0: It's so great and so awesome. And Charlie, I'm guessing, is at the age where like everything is fascinating and cool and just the wonder they have in their eyes.
1: The last couple of weeks, he's been starting to ask me, what's this? What's this? What's this? What's this? And he just points at everything. <laughs> all day long. What's this? What's this? Which so is so sweet. cool to be able to explain that for the first time to someone, you know?
0: He's a blank canvas in many ways, and you get to witness him experiencing the world. I mean, it's like the best thing ever. It's also the hardest thing ever, and you get your ass kicked every day. I'm a mother of three, and <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. my kids are at the ages. They're two in college and one in high school, and I kind of am like sitting in my chair with my popcorn, like watching it unfold, and it's so fun. I learn it from them. Be. They make me laugh. They make me cry. They make me really pissed off, and <laughs> I learn. I think it's like the ultimate act of surrendering your sense of control over the universe, which is healthy for people like you and me who are like workers.
1: I'm a huge control freak, right? Like and I've always been a control freak, and I've always wanted to control everything in my life. It's you know, just
0: wait of... till Charlie gets his driver's license and has his I first know, date I'm and be
1: a <laughs> that's going to be a whole problem for me, but it is surrendering some control. You start learning that as a parent, which I think is important because I definitely need that.
0: your episode with Vivek Murthy the Surgeon General, was incredibly powerful and moving, and I kind of listened to it twice. And you said on the podcast, or maybe somewhere else, you said that it was the most popular episode you've had so far.
1: Yeah, it would get a lot of good feedback from it.
0: Why do you think it was so well-received?
1: Mental health challenges during the pandemic unfortunately became part of our political polarization. You're either a liberal who takes COVID seriously or you're a conservative who doesn't take it seriously, and suddenly, like, mental health became something that conservatives were talking about, right? Which is silly. And also, like, progressives and liberals should, of course, care about mental health, right? Nuance doesn't work very well on social media, as as you You know, right. right? There's no room for complicated nuanced views, which is like, yeah, there are certain precautions we all had to take that people still have to take, but there's still a balance between the precautions and the effects on our mental health Maybe we have to take those precautions and still have to deal with those mental health challenges, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist and we shouldn't talk about them. Hearing the Surgeon General, especially like the Biden administration Surgeon General, focus so much on that probably made a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of liberals who have been very cautious about COVID, as I was throughout the pandemic, think like, okay, it's okay for me to also worry about my mental health and what all of these precautions and all of the restrictions have done to my mental health.
0: Yeah, so much of removing the stigma around mental health is about normalizing it. And I think when you have, let's just face it, two guys who are pretty successful talking about their feelings and the importance of social connection, that is meaningful, that's impactful. This is like the song I sing every day, but mental health is health. I love the way Vivek Murthy is talking about it, thinking about it, writing about it.
1: I think that we could all use a little bit more empathy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> please. Just,
1: and look, I'm, like I said, I'm very progressive. I am a Democratic partisan, but I just finished up The Wilderness where I did focus groups with all of these voters and I did focus groups with voters. They show up in November, but they don't follow politics closely. We put a clip out of one of the episodes where I talked to young voters in Orange County and it was right after the Dobbs decision and they were all outraged about Dobbs. And so they all knew about it. They all knew about the Supreme Court decision. They knew about the potential consequences. And then I said, All right, who's voting in the midterms? And the woman next to me goes, "Uh, What's a midterm? What's that? So we put out this clip. And of course, on Twitter, everyone's like, What is wrong with her? How could she do that? Let's give up on these people. We shouldn't waste our time on these people. The point of the whole series is like, Hey, everyone's going through shit. Everyone's got busy lives. Everyone's got reasons that they do or don't pay attention to politics. Some of us have the luxury to pay attention to politics. Some of it, it's our job. Some of us are just trying to get through the day and are working hard and struggling to like make ends meet and we don't have time to look at the news. And that doesn't mean that we like give up on those people. Like We have to do a better job of meeting people where they are and then not leaving them there, trying to bring them somewhere else. you got to at least start by meeting them where they are. And I worry that social media and the internet has made that job harder and made empathy harder because when we're fighting with someone online, it's not a human face that we're looking at in person. It's just some nameless, faceless tweet that we can yell at. And it becomes easier to say nasty things and do nasty things.
0: What's been so interesting to me about Twitter and the pandemic insofar as Twitter represents like the national conversation and the false dichotomies around complicated subjects like mental health, we so easily moralize human behavior. And as you said, it became like a conservative talking point. If you talked about mental health and you talked about the need for social connection and you talked about the harms of the pandemic restrictions on, say, adolescents being out of school and behind closed doors, mental health was kind of weaponized politically against the left. I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, and I was out there talking about let's more appropriately balance the harms of the virus with the harms of the mitigations themselves, because health is about more than the absence of COVID-19, and particularly when you're talking about adolescents and adolescent brains and kids who are being deprived of their social interactions, the contours of their regular life, the mentorship from coaches and teachers, and in some cases, access to food and safety at school, we really need to think in 2022 about policies that are balanced and holistic. And what was so disturbing to me is how the lack of empathy, the desire to kind of like label people as a political operative for having a certain viewpoint, which is not political at all.
1: Or to say like, hey, you don't care about this deadly disease that could well, cause harm. It. I and it's like, well, yeah, of course we can say that we care about that. And we believe that and know that the effects are real and that people are dying and that people are suffering from long COVID like that. That's all real. But like, we sort of have to be honest about the fact that if it's here forever, right? If we're not getting rid of it, if we've moved past the part we can get rid of it, so it's going to be with us forever, we do have to craft these policies that balance making sure that we're protected and our health is protected, but also making sure that we can live our lives. And that's not just like going to have fun. That's like doing the things that give you fulfillment and keep you mentally healthy.
0: As you witnessed and felt yourself, social isolation has an emotional, physical cost. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts about how we on the subject of mental health, for example, which you know is harder to measure yeah. than it is cholesterol. you know, Social isolation is not something you can capture in a blood test like you can someone's blood sugar. And so talking about it, if people aren't familiar with the vocabulary around mental health, talking about it in the public space can become challenging, particularly when you're talking about it in a public health arena. Whether it's about mental health, whether it's a conversation about gun violence, whether it's a conversation about roe v wade like how do we use technology in a way to capture that gray and the nuance when it's so easy to set up false dichotomies to have straw man arguments and then pile on people who either disagree with you or who look like in that video clip you put up who look like they're just dumb when they're actually just human
1: i genuinely don't think that social media is the place to have those discussions like I, there you know. go
0: that's yeah. why you're podcasting, I, I just
1: <laughs> One of the reasons we went with the podcast and didn't want to, like, just do, like, a cable TV thing is format. You get space to talk, to make mistakes, to, like, go on a tangent, to say something that might be complicated or nuanced. And you're not like, oh, the commercial break's coming in 30 seconds and I just have to get my point out. Or, you know, I'm going to tweet. You know, I have a character limit and that's all I can say. And then it goes away and then, you know, everyone starts jumping on you. So, like, I don't attempt to have debates on Twitter anymore. I don't, you know, it's just I don't think it's worthwhile. I don't think it's healthy for me. And I don't think it's like adding to the conversation, really. And so I'm fortunate enough that I have a couple podcasts. So if I want to talk about something that I think is complicated, I will prep for it. I'll read. I'll write. I'll think about it. And then I'll come on the podcast and I'll say it.
0: So where did you get those boundaries from? Like, is it because you had Charlie? Is it because your wife was like, honey, I'm going to like murder you if you're on your phone anymore? Like what forced you to have better boundaries? Is it like or is it just practicing, like riding a bike, like putting your phone down and seeing how much better you feel going to mean? What did it?
1: The feeling that I had during the pandemic when I was just pretty unhappy and not feeling great and feeling very stressed out. I think it was sitting with that and finally realizing, like, okay, what is it that's doing this? And, like, how can I get out of it? And what can I do? And I'm someone, as I'm, like, talking to you right now, like, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I've been on a podcast for five years. Everyone knows me. I say whatever. (laughs) So, like, I started talking about it with a lot of people in my life. You know, like, I talk about it with Emily. I talk about it with my parents. I talk about it with my friends. I'm not, like, shy about (laughs) telling people what my problems are. People talk about how there's a stigma talking about mental health publicly. I also think part of why I had been resistant to talk about it is, like, I am privileged in so many ways. People don't want to hear about, like, the well-off white dude with, like, all the opportunities in the world who's, like, having a tough time. (laughs) Like, you know, and so you feel bad talking about that because people went through the pandemic and went through so much worse (laughs) than what I went through. There is a little bit of that, right? You don't want to share because... You don't want to feel like you're complaining when there are other people who are going through worse. There was a little bit of that. But then at some point you realize like connection is so important. And so much of this conversation is about how social media doesn't actually give us that connection. But connecting with people is also about like, oh, someone talked about how they were having a tough time. I identify with that. I had that too. And that makes you feel less alone when you hear someone else talking about that. And that's actually, I think, beneficial. And that's something that I came to realize.
0: Yeah, I think externalizing your feelings, talking about it with other people, normalizing an experience. Because if you talk to enough people like I do in my office, everyone struggled during the pandemic. I don't know a single person who didn't struggle with some aspect of their mental health. They didn't have to reckon with the relationship with their spouse, their partner, relationship with food, alcohol, you know, work, the work-life, quote, balance. Anybody who says that during the pandemic and afterwards they are living the dream, I just don't know what they're smoking, you know? Like, yeah. And I think the honesty that you have about it is important for yourself. It's also important for other people. I'm kind of like you. I kind of just talk about how I feel and externalize it much to the chagrin of my husband sometimes because he's like, all right, white flag on the feelings. Like, can you go tell <laughs> someone else? But I think that externalizing things and then giving yourself the space and the time to sit with this discomfort and then connecting, okay, what is this thought? Like, where does it live in my body? Is it giving me heart palpitations, sweaty palms? Is it giving me gastrointestinal distress? Is it giving me a headache? Is it making me not sleep well? Is it making me gravitate towards the like bag of gummy bears or the second glass of wine or bottle of wine? what is it doing? And then naming the fact that like your phone is not just a phone, it's a drug. It is designed to draw you in and that you don't have control over it like you think you do. It is actually controlling you more than you're controlling it. I mean, I think just acknowledging discomfort, surrendering to things that you don't have control over, and then trying to create agency where you can have it is really the key to health and well-being. It's interesting what you said about feeling sheepish about complaining or feeling down when you're a privileged white person with every opportunity. I think so many people have felt like that during the pandemic. And in general, they do. But there's plenty of suffering to go around. You can't compare yourself to someone else. We are entitled to suffering. In fact, suffering is part of the human condition. If you didn't have suffering, you wouldn't really be human. So it's not so much about, are you worse off than someone else? It's about, what are you doing about it? and how do you cope and can then you learn from it to then pay it forward to your kids or your family
1: or learn to have that empathy for other people i mean exactly you know at the beginning of the pandemic when i didn't have a child or even when charlie was just a baby you know you'd read all these stories about parents home with their kids and how stressful it was and how all these parents complaining about they were home with their kids and they're working from home and it must have been crazy and it was sort of like noise in the background and now that charlie's 2 i think to myself at least a couple times a week I'm like oh my god if we were home with Charlie this age and another couple kids six seven eight and Emily and I were both working and we were both in the house and we were in this small place and we had three kids and we didn't have child care I like oh my god <laughs> and I suddenly empathize with all of those parents who were going through that the tough part about humans is like you really have to have the experience or come close to the experience yourself to have the empathy for other people. And I wish it wasn't like that. But if we were able to empathize a little bit more, I think we'd be in better shape.
0: Yeah, I've wanted for a long time to make a t-shirt that says make empathy great again. Yeah. (laughs) Because having empathy is what distinguishes us from sociopaths. Like human beings have shame. Because we have shame, we can also have empathy for other people. Like people who don't experience shame can't experience empathy. And those are people who are... Sociopaths, like
1: So that was our last president.
0: <laughs> well, not to name names, but if we could give each other a little latitude and a little grace for having struggles, which we all do, not compare yeah. ourselves to other people and say, oh, wow, that person really should win the Suffering Olympics. I'm only going to get a silver and that person gets the gold. And so I, who am I to complain? And then give each other a little latitude as we all navigate like this insane world we live in, then we'd be a lot better off. But I think doing that is about... I think it starts with social connections and human interaction, and it starts with relating to other people who are like old friends, but also meeting new people and understanding their stories and experiencing what it's like to be in someone else's shoes.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: What is it that currently keeps you up at night, like that makes you sweat, like personally?
1: So now I feel like I have figured out how to balance work and parenting. Good job. In like some sort of rough capacity. <laughs> yes, like you have, it,
0: um, you have it sort of like okay right now.
1: It has left no time for me to like have any of my own time or my own free time. That has taken a bit of a toll on me. You know, I go home five or six o'clock. That's my time with Charlie. He goes down at seven or 7.30 and then I either prep for a pod or watch like a half hour of TV with Emily and then I go right to bed and then I'm up at five and then the whole thing starts all over again weekends like I used to do things on the weekends and now the weekends is like all right it's Charlie all day Saturday and Charlie all day Sunday we have fun but you know how it is with kids like it's fulfilling but it's tiring in the last couple of months as I was working on the wilderness doing offline and doing two pods of Americas and helping to run this company I was just like I can't do this I can't do it all <laughs> like I need some me time at first I felt sort of ashamed that I couldn't because I spent my 20s working in the White House, that was harder. That was like, I had no life. I had to just be on call in case anything that happened in the world, I had to then go write about it for the president. So that was like constant, but I could deal with it. But I was also in my 20s. (laughs) And so there's also the realization that like, okay, being 41 and having a child is actually different than when I was a 20-something-year-old kid in the White House who got three or four hours of sleep a night and was fine. Mm-hmm. because on the weekends I could like go out and party with my friends and then go into the White House and be up till five in the morning and write a speech like you could just do it back then I can't do it anymore
0: and let's acknowledge that being with your kid while it's fulfilling and you can look at him and say what's this what's that it's still work it's not all fun and no. anybody who says that it's <laughs> joy and rainbows every minute is really again like smoking something you do need to and I need to do this too much better than I do now have Brain rest, like read a pleasure book that's not productive. Find things to do that are not productive. Because if you're anything like me, which I think you are, you're like a productivity fiend. If you can like multitask, that's even better. If you can like tweet and change a diaper and like throw the laundry in, it's like, woohoo, you're winning. When actually, there's really a point of diminishing returns if you live like that. And the kids have taught me so much about like how much I don't know. How little control I have over the universe and how sitting back and like surrendering is actually really healthy for me. But that's not easy for me. And I'm imagining it's not easy for you either.
1: No, because when I have a half hour of free time, like the other night, Emily was out and I, I finally finished my work. I finished the wilderness. And so I sat on the couch and I was like, I have a half hour. My first instinct was, what can I do that's most productive with this Yeah, of course. Even as I'm flipping through the channels to figure out what I should watch on TV, I'm like, all right, I only have a half hour of TV. (laughs) I can't even choose what to catch up on. Yeah, what's the best show,
0: the high yield ROI show to watch? Exactly. What's going
1: to get me thinking? And instead finally, I was just like, oh yeah, I'll just watch a dumb, like Emily and I had been watching Love Island, which is so bad. Oh my God. But I was like, you know what, just a half hour of dumb reality television That's all I want. I don't want anything thought provoking right now.
0: (laughs) That was actually a great move. Like I will read Us Weekly, which my husband calls U.S. Weekly, just (laughs) for brain rest, because it is so delicious to just turn it off. And so that's also a key to health. I mean, I work in, you know, right in the center of D.C. I see a lot of like hard charging professionals who are perfectionistic and ambitious and wonderful and have mental health because we all do. You know, sometimes the best advice I can give them is to like do less, dare to get a B plus, take a day off, and then I try to practice what I preach because of course it's much easier to say these things than to do them yourself.
1: That's me in the entire series of offline. So, yeah. <laughs> I know it.
0: John, I am so grateful that I got the chance to talk to you. I'm so thrilled that You're doing what you're doing. Offline is such an awesome production. And I'm really awed by how awesome and honest you are about how you battled struggle. It's cool.
1: Thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me on. And thanks for having these conversations because I do think the more people have them and the more people hear them, the better off we'll be.
0: Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.,